Welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work, how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey, which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take, and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'll be speaking to people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who've had career changes to entrepreneurs who forge their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. So I'm absolutely thrilled and delighted on this edition of the Workplace Happiness podcast to be talking today with Dr Sue Black, who I'm sure many of you will already know. She's a uh, a famous uh, forensic anthropologist, an anatomist, uh, an academic. Uh, she's written countless books. Uh, her last book in 2018, All That Remains, is a must-read for any of you who are interested in, in anthropology. Um, but she's also, in, in addition to all of that, the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Engagement at Lancaster University. So there can be nobody better to talk to about the remarkable life that she's led uh, as a forensic anthropologist, but also in the world of engagement. Sue, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm not going to be able to live up to that, but you're very kind. Well, we all know, all of us that know you, know you will more than live up to it. So, so let's start at the beginning, Sue. Um, you grew up on the, the west coast of Scotland. Uh, so tell us a little about your childhood and, and what seeds might have been there to get you into the extraordinary career you pursued. I was actually born in Inverness and when I was very young my parents moved to the west coast to a tiny tiny little hamlet that's called Strom Ferry which sits on the shores of Loch Carron and so I grew up in the the 1960s and the 1970s in just the most idyllic environment you could imagine for a child you know we, we opened the front door in the morning and myself and my friends disappeared for the entirety of the day you would arrive at somebody's poor mother for lunch, um, and then you'd come home sometime at night, exhausted, filthy, not having done anything that you shouldn't, but really having had a childhood that I, I just wish I could have given to my own. So I was very lucky. I am very much a West Coast and very much a country girl at heart. And in that, my father and my grandmother were probably the most important influences in my life. I love my mother, but my personality was very much with my father and his mother. And my father, um, despite the fact that my maiden name is Gunn, he actually was a tremendous shot. And so I used to go out with my father when he would shoot rabbits and deer and pigeon or whatever it was going to be to go into the pot for my mother. And my mother was a little bit squeamish. So it was my job to skin the rabbits, to gut them, to grill the deer, to whatever it may be. And so from a young age of six or seven, I never thought anything of having a knife in one hand and skinning or or gutting a rabbit with the other. So that when I got to be 12 and and my father was um, 
you know, a very sort of strict man of his generation. When I was 12, he said to me, what are you going to do for a job? And I thought he meant when I grew up, he meant when I was 12, what job are you going to get? And it seemed fairly logical for me. What I did was I got a job in a butcher shop. And so I spent the entirety of every Saturday and every, holi every holiday up to my elbows in blood and guts and bone and those sorts of things and never thought anything of it. So the early stages of my career, I think, were really set when I was very young as somebody who was never, ever going to be squeamish. And, and in terms of um, what you studied, I mean, did, did you have a leaning towards biology and the sciences? I had a real passion about my biology teacher because he was the loveliest man that I think I'd ever met. He, he was a real paternal sort that found the best in you, really dragged it out of you and gave you a belief in yourself when you didn't have it. Just the kind of teacher that I think everybody would want to have. And he was a biologist and he said to me um, when I went away and had a days, a couple of days work experience in a hospital. I said to him, that's it, I'm going to be a medical technician. And I can remember him saying to me, don't be silly, you're going to university. And I didn't know that I could, but because he said I had to go, that's exactly what I did. And so he was the most influential person, I think, on, on me academically. And I lost touch with him, of course, as you do when I left school. But they asked me, the Royal Society of Edinburgh asked me to give a, a lecture to schools and where would I want to go to do it? And I said, oh, I'd love to go back to Inverness Royal Academy and I'd love to give a lecture there. <coughs> and what I didn't know was they'd taken him out of retirement. And so as I gave my lecture, there he was in the front row, not looking any different, can I say. You know, I thought he looked old when I was young and he really didn't look any different. And one of the, the young people in the audience asked me, why do you do what you do? And to be able to point to him and say, because of that man, I think was incredibly important. And teachers are often forgotten about just how influential they are and what a child goes on to do. So he, he, he was my utter inspiration and my hero, and he remains it. And I'm still delighted that I have Christmas cards from him every single year. And what a wonderful thing to be able to do at that lecture, to point to him and publicly say that thing in front of him. And then the, the, the school actually asked me to come back and do their prize giving. And I said, only if I can do it alongside him. And so both of us were on stage handing out prizes. And, you know, that, that to me was just, that was perfect symmetry. And so it, it was therefore a very natural choice for you to go to Aberdeen to, to study uh, biology, medicine, etc. I did. I went to Aberdeen because it was far enough away from home that my mum and dad didn't know what I was going to get up to, but also not so far that if things went wrong, I could get on a train and I was there in, in a couple of hours time. So it was that nice sort of step between one and the other. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do something biology based. And Aberdeen gave you a choice in the first two years to explore all sorts of things. And I realized very quickly, I was never gonna become a geneticist. I was never gonna become a zoologist or a botanist. And the one area that I felt I really connected with was human anatomy. And in your third year, you then had to make a decision of what you were going to major your studies in. And I chose human anatomy. And in the third year, you went into the dissecting room 
and you were given a cadaver, a, a dead body, somebody who had bequeathed their remains just so that you could learn. And I spent an entire year dissecting the human from the top of the head to the bottom of his little toes. And in many ways, it was like a butcher shop again. It was a different animal, but I still had a knife in one hand and I still had muscle and bone and guts. So I could see the continuity of what I'd started to do. But the, the real sort of humbling nature of realizing that the person in front of you, when they were alive, made a decision to bequest their remains. And the only ask they had was that you learned something. And that for me was, it was a huge weight of responsibility, but it was actually just incredibly sobering. And, and I loved every moment I spent in the dissecting room, every moment. And, and were there many others that, that studied in your year with you? Not in the science side. So there, there were obviously the, me the medical students and the dental students who did their own dissections. But in science, I think in my year, there were eight of us. And so it was a very small group of people that chose to spend an entire year in a room surrounded by dead bodies, dissecting away minutiae of muscles and nerves and blood vessels and those sorts of things. I think it takes a certain type of person to want to do that for a living. I'm sure it does. <laughs> and, and what are your memories of that time? Um, being totally absorbed in what I was doing and for the first time feeling that I was in the right place at the right time doing what I wanted to do. I didn't know where it was going to take me. I had no idea. But that, that year was utterly pivotal. And then what happened was my, my head of department, who's no longer with us, unfortunately, came up to me one day and said, I've got some money. Do you want to do a PhD? And I had no idea what it meant to do a PhD. But it seemed as if he had some money and it meant I could stay there. So I said, yes. And what I knew was I didn't want to research rats or mice or cancers or that just wasn't me. But one of the members of staff said, well, what we can do is we can look at the human skeleton and how much information you can gain from the human skeleton. And that became my PhD. And for the first time, I then got the invite to go in to a mortuary and to work on a forensic case. And, and for me, each of these were, were little small steps and Rubicons to cross. You know, can I, can I gut a rabbit? Can I work in a butcher shop? Can I work in a dissecting room? Can I work in a mortuary where the stakes are so much higher, so immediate and so visceral? And I, I fell in love with being in a mortuary directly after falling in love with being in a dissecting room. So, so how, t talk to us about how you found your first job. Uh, after your PhD? So I was very lucky um, in that I was invited to go and interview for a job at St Thomas's Hospital in London and they were looking for an anatomist and somebody who could go into the dissecting room and teach and everybody else who was applying were all into biochemistry and cancer and here was this you know rather old-fashioned anthropologist and the head of department obviously asked a question of everybody and he'd said if i put you into my dissecting room this afternoon could you teach the brachial plexus which is the the nerves that you have underneath the armpit and i said yes of course i can he said prove it to me draw it and so i was able to draw the brachial plexus and that was his test and i seemed to pass that so i i became a lecturer at st thomas's and thomas's then merged with guys 
until I moved over to Guy's. And um, once you're in London, you're within the vicinity of the Home Office and the Foreign Office and the Metropolitan Police. And so I then started to do work and cases for the Metropolitan Police particularly, but then also with the government. And, and can you share with us some of those early cases and how you felt and uh, you know, doing what you were doing in the very first practical way? Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite challenging when you don't have that safety net of a supervisor with you or somebody who's done it before and you feel very, very exposed. But one of the first cases that I did when I was in London was um, somebody had gone missing. And the police believed that he'd been murdered. They believed that the body had been sectioned into different pieces and that the body parts had been sent off with refuse trucks into landfill. And so the police teams had been out scouring this landfill site. And of course, when you do that, you're going to find all kinds of detritus. So you're going to find bones from people's meals you're going to find dead animals all sorts of things and so the police were constantly coming in with these bags of bits and pieces to the pathologist and ian west was the pathologist and he got so bored with the police he said there must be somebody in the anatomy department who can look at all of these bones and so the girl as i was got sent down to the pathology department and on this particular occasion, it was a very miserable police sergeant who was rather sort of grizzled and, and looked at me as if to say, you know, young girl, what does she know? And so he brought out this bag of bones. And of course, I looked at them and I knew what they were, but I knew he wasn't going to, to believe me. So I put the bones into a plastic bag, tied them, put them on the radiator and let them warm up a bit because as they warm up, you intensify the smell. So I opened the bag and I put it under his nose and I said to him, what does it smell of? He said, well, it smells like roast lamb. I said, exactly, it's a sheep. And because he'd identified these were sheep bones, he suddenly thought, well, maybe this girl isn't so bad. Maybe she knows a bit about one or two things. And so I managed to win him round. And eventually I got every single bit of lamb, pork, beef, chicken, dog, cat, tortoise, you name it, that came in off that landfill site. We never found the person we were looking for. But by that point, having started to work with the police, I was then inside the tent. And that made it easier for them to come to me when there were other cases that then arose. And, and talking to you now and, and seeing you smile when you, you talk about those uh, early cases, why was it that you so enjoyed the job? Clear to see you did enjoy the job. Why did you so enjoy it? I, I absolutely love it because I think there is, there's an investigator inside all of us. We all loved Morse and Taggart and Lewis and, and you know, whichever was the sort of investigatory television programmes because we all love a mystery and we all love a puzzle and we want to be able to solve it. And in studying anatomy and in studying forensic anthropology, I was given the tools to be able to solve a problem that, that not many other people had. And I loved the challenge of the fact that every single day was different. And what you were trying to do was move a case forward. You were either saying to the police, forget it, this is a sheep, there's no point in a murder investigation based on a sheep, or you were saying, this is human. And if it's human, then that's somebody's son, somebody's daughter, mother, father, friend, you name it. And suddenly it becomes very serious because this is about saying, what has happened to this person? 
who were they when they were alive and can I bring that cycle back together again right to the beginning so that we can release these remains to a family to say it's bad news and I'm really sorry but it is your son and there's an element of kindness in that because they don't have the false hope that they're going to come back there is there's a finality that allows them then to move on with their lives or it's about being able to bring somebody to justice who has commit, committed a crime and often for us it's a very serious crime because it's usually murder so it's a very worthwhile job and it is probably it's probably one of the funniest places in the world is in a mortuary and that feels a totally wrong thing to say and the fun is never directed at the deceased or the situation it's about trying to keep a team together who are doing almost the most horrific and horrendous things in the most challenging of circumstances and that black humor is what keeps a team together but the minute somebody comes into that team who's not a part of it instantly they change and it becomes this very very buttoned up team and i love the fact that you are a part of something that is using skills you've developed to try to make a difference and and then of course you expanded in the sense that uh, you started to work outside the uk so uh, very famously you you worked uh, in kosovo uh, and then you had tours in iraq so how how did that happen how how did you move from working obviously with the met and the police in the uk to being involved internationally i was classically in the wrong place at the wrong time so um when kosovo occurred we um, the, the, the K4 troops were sitting on the, the boundaries of Kosovo, desperate to get in because they knew that atrocities were going on across the border. But until we had the UN all clear to be able to go in and investigate, there was nothing that we could do. So we had, in some ways, uh, an awareness that there was likely to be a need for our services. But when the troops did retreat in Kosovo, it happened, I think, a little bit swifter than many expected. And the prosecutor put out a call to all uh, member states to provide forensic teams to go into the country to, be, uh, to identify what were going to be potential indictment sites against Milosevic or Mladic or Karadic or whosoever, to be able to recover the evidence, to be able to analyze the evidence, and then to be able to present it for the courts. So we were aware it could happen, but we didn't know when. And I got a phone call one Wednesday uh, from Peter Vanessas, who was a pathologist in Glasgow. And Peter, uh, classic Peter Vanessas, he phoned me up and he said, what are you doing on Saturday? And I thought, oh, how nice, he's asking me for dinner. And I said, well, I'm not doing anything. He said, great, because we've got tickets for you. You're coming out to Kosovo. No, right, fantastic, okay, what am I doing? We don't know yet. How long will I be there? We're not quite sure. Okay, you know, sh should I bring a bikini or a parka? And the answer was absolutely everything because it's freezing cold at night and boiling hot through the day. And so you prepared for something that you could never prepare for and were given no notice. So you had no reason to start to get nervous or worried about it. But I knew that my mother would panic. So we never told my mother um, that I was away. And when she realized she hadn't spoken to me for a week, that was finally when I told her, actually, my husband told her I was in Kosovo. And she was furious at me because she'd had a whole week when she could have been worrying that she actually was 
And so she was very cross with me. But it was one of those points in your career where it, it was changing. It definitely changed my perspective on so many things. And it was pivotal. And I wouldn't swap a moment off it. However horrendous it was, and it truly was a horrendous two years, I wouldn't swap a moment off it. So what did it change? It changed my discipline. So it changed forensic anthropology. It meant for the first time we were as a part of that forensic team where we hadn't perhaps necessarily been in the past. It, as a leader of that team, made me think about what it was that my team needed because we were working in exceptional circumstances, whether that related to the heat, the press scrutiny, the security, because there were still snipers in the hillside. So being able to work with the military, being able to work with the police, being able to be responsible for the team. And when you worked alongside the families more than anything, you began to realize the enormity of what they had gone through and to realize that in your own life, we complain about so many things. And I don't do that anymore because you know, it doesn't matter. I don't care if the Hoover doesn't go around on the floor once a week. I don't care if there are scratches down the side of my car. Um, I don't care if somebody else chairs a meeting and I don't. What I do care about is that my children are safe that they, I get the chance to hug them because these families had that taken away from them. And it changes your perspective on what's important in life. And it makes you realize that sometimes life is very short and you think you're going to live till you're 80 or 90, but sometimes you don't have any control over that and your life might end in the next five minutes. And when you get that realization, you take nothing for granted. And I came home as a very, very different person, a hugely grateful person, but somebody who just totally revamped and reconsidered what made me, what made me happy and what was important. And your work there was so important for the trials that came. So do you just want to say a little bit about the evidence that you amassed from your work and, and then how that was used in the trials? So if you, if you consider everybody thinks that what we do in the forensic world looks a bit like CSI and what we have is the, uh, these, you know, fantastic stainless steel mortuaries with a high tech equipment and everything else. Let me take you to the first crime scene. So, so this is what it's really like. It was down a dirt track. It was an outhouse. And it was an outhouse where 44 men had been herded in through the front door and separated to two rooms. A gunman stood at the door of each room, sprayed each room with automatic fire, and then accomplices threw in straw, threw in petrol, and torched the building. When we come to it, which is six to seven months later, where you've had 40 degree heat, you have 43 men because one survived, and that's a really important person because they are a witness, an indictment witness. But 43 men lost their lives. You're a man if you're 14 years of age because you can bear arms. So our youngest was 14, our eldest was in his 80s. Separated into two rooms. The remains are commingled, so they're all in, buried on top of each other because they literally were left where they fell. They're partly burnt. 
the partly submerged under the roof tiles because the, the roof collapsed on top of them. And because the, the families had not taken their dogs with them, there were roaming wild packs of dogs and this had been a food source for them. So the bodies were disrupted because of the wild dogs activity. When we come into that, we stand at the door of that room and you have to figure out how am I going to separate one body from another? And you literally strap on knee protectors, you get down on your knees and you go forward, fingertip, inch by inch, till you find your first bit of a body or a bone. And then it's about clearing around that to say, can I find the outline of who this person may be? Recovering those remains and photographing everything that you do. And often there were no personal effects on these individuals because they've been stripped, but they did have clothing. So you'd recover the clothing and you'd wash them, but very carefully. And they would be held up for families to see. And women would be able to say, that's my husband's shirt, because my husband only had one shirt. And I know I sewed on that button with that thread. So people were being identified tentatively from their clothing. So we had to recover the clothing as well as the bodies. And because there was a survivor, he had told the investigators what he said happened at that site. Our job was to recover the evidence and say, what happened here were two sets of people were in two separate rooms. Here's all the evidence of gunshot so that we have bullets that are still embedded in the plaster and the walls. But all the injuries we're seeing are gunshot injuries, they're ballistic injuries. And these are not individuals who are being executed. It's random um, execution of, of a, an automatic fire because people are being hit in the chest and some are being hit on the hand and some are being hit in the head. And that tells you that it's, it's just random fire. And knowing that these were all men tells you they'd been segregated. Knowing that these were all individuals between the ages of 14 and upwards told you again they've been selected as individuals who were believed could have been combatants. And all of that evidence that is partially circumstantial, but also scientific and being able to say this is male, and it's a male of 14 years of age, and he died by gunshot injury, but it's automatic fire. And he was at the front, he got the gunshot first. When he fell, other people fell on top of him, being able to reconstruct what happens in that room and for it then to tally with what the survivor said meant that when it went to the international courts in The Hague, then our evidence supported his evidence. And that makes it much stronger in terms of the prosecutions. And then having done that, Sue, uh, which is both horrific and it's inspiring at the same time, uh, you then went to Iraq. You had two tours in Iraq. That was, that was with the MOD. And in specific, it, we were looking in the first case for um, individuals who had gone missing. So if you remember, Terry Lloyd had been um, out there with a team and he'd not embedded with the troops. And as a result, they were technically a rogue team. And we knew that they'd been hit in crossfire between Iraqi and American forces. And um, whilst the body of Terry Lloyd had been returned, two of his team had not. We, we'd had some intelligence from the MOD that some bodies had been found in a little town called Azerbaijan, uh, just north of Basra. 
And so our job was to go in and to excavate and to recover these remains and to try to identify whether they were the missing persons. So that, that was one tour and the other tour was in, in similar vein. It was trying to identify um, military personnel who had lost their lives out there and their bodies had not been returned. So everyone is different. That was my first ever um, ex um, experience of being in a Chinook helicopter. And I know I'm terribly naive, but my goodness me, are those things huge. And as it was coming into to Basra Air Base, you can actually feel the vibration of the rotors on you. And you suddenly think, you know, I'm a middle-aged woman. Why am I wearing a flat jacket and a hat running onto the back of a Chinook helicopter thinking I'm Tom Cruise or whatever it may be? And you're sort of sitting there in the webbing of, of this Chinook thinking, you know, I'm a grandmother, I should be at home, but loving every single minute of it. And we, on the second tour on this Chinook, we were on one side and special forces were on the other. And we had some coffins in the middle uh, because we were going to excavate from a cemetery. And we were all sort of looking terribly nervous, but of course they're so utterly nonchalant. And um, we said to the, they said to us, don't worry, you know, these things hardly ever crash. But if they do, if we could all remember to roll into the middle, then we could all roll into the coffins and be ready packed for the team that are going to come and find us. And that's what I mean about the humour and these sorts of things. And I wouldn't care, but the darn Chinook, we hit a flock of birds and suddenly the Chinook fell. And that was a, I thought we'd been taken out by an RPG or whatever it was, but it was a flock of geese. So, you know, they, they got sucked in through the, the helicopter and we got covered in blood and feathers and all sorts of things, but it was just a flock of birds. Loved it. Of course, you, you went to many other countries as well. Um, Sierra Leone, you went to in Grenada, and um, uh, also you, you got involved in the tsunami. Um, You've so, been doing your homework. Well, you, you just got, the, I mean, your story is the most incredible story. Um, but tell us about the tsunami and what, what you did there. Um, I, I got to the point of being an irascible middle aged woman, a uh, redheaded woman because when the tsunami occurred, I was informed that the UK response was probably going to be two fingerprint officers from the Met. And I wrote one of my um, letters to the Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair, and said, we've been warning you for I don't know how long, that this is not an if we're going to need a response to when. The when is here and we're not prepared. And the UK is a laughing stock in that we have teams going out from the, across the world and the UK is sending out two police officers. It's a disgrace. And to his eternal credit, um, he brought me in when I came back to London and we set up disaster victim identification training as a result of it. So it was that recognition of the mirror was held up and, and he responded. And I must admit, you know, the DVI that we had at that time was probably one of the best in the world. So I went out there not really knowing again what to expect um, and what we had were bodies that were being brought in from everywhere around the country and nobody really knew what to do with them and so the bodies were being loaded onto the back of trucks, they were being taken into the cities and they were being dropped at the gates of the temples and we had no way of knowing where these bodies had been picked up, whether they were from the same geographic area, it, it was an absolute nightmare and there was no refrigeration so in 40 degree heat these bodies were decomposing very very quickly in front of us 
And so the first thing we tried to do was to get in what we call reefers, which are these refrigerated containers, to try and get the temperature down and to halt decomposition. Because we needed to get DNA samples, we needed to do the postmortems. And because there's only so many that you can do in a day, you need to halt decomposition because that's the biggest enemy for identification. And I think there were some mistakes made in the early days because bodies were returned to families when they shouldn't have been. But eventually what we managed to do, and it was the Norwegians who gave us um, the mortuary facilities, but we had international teams then working in those facilities in a real almost production line basis, which was incredibly successful, very, very effective, very efficient. But we were in Thailand for a full year when we had probably about five and a half thousand individuals to try to identify. And I think by the end of it, they probably had a hundred or, or, or so that weren't identified and they would have been placed into a mass grave and recognized as being unidentified at that time. Because of course, people lost entire families. There was nobody to go to, to get the records or to get DNA samples. And that was, that was the really sad thing about much of it. And for all of your incredible work, you've quite rightly, appropriately been, uh, been honoured twice, OBE uh, in 2001, I think. And then more recently, in 2016, you became a Dane. Um, looking back at your childhood uh, on the west coast of Scotland, could you ever imagine that having um, been out shooting with your dad and working the butcher shop, that um, you'd be recognised in that way for your contribution? No, and I'm really uncomfortable with it as well. So if my father was alive, my father would have said two things. He'd have said an OBE stands for Other Buggers Efforts. And he'd be absolutely right, because the OBE was about what the team did in Kosovo. And um, when I was approached for that, I turned it down twice, because I said it wasn't appropriate for me to take recognition because it was a team, it's not a person. And eventually um, they got rather frustrated with me and said look you know you're going to be the only discipline that's not recognized in this way and I said well okay okay I'll do it then and then I realized you can only take three people with you and I have three children and a husband and I wasn't going to decide who not to take so I turned it down again and doubly frustrated they came back and said look you don't have to come to Holyrood you don't have to go to Buckingham Palace you can have it done in your local town hall if you want and so that's what I did. So I was really happy about that. So that I accepted. And then when, you know, I, I, I really am grateful and I sound like a dreadfully ungrateful wretch, but I really was honored to have the DBE. But again, um, I didn't feel that it was something that would sit very comfortably with me because in my head, I can hear my father saying, a dame is what you get in a pantomime. And I, it makes me think of Christopher Biggins. So every time I hear the name Dame, I think of stripy tights. And so it doesn't sit terribly well with me. But my daughter said to me, Mom, we are never going to get a chance to see inside Buckingham Palace. You're going to take it. And so I did as I was told. Um, and I, I am really honoured. But anybody who knows me knows that the minute they use the title, I usually just say, can you please just call me Sue? And um, uh, which is typically modest of you. Um, it's not. It's, it's just no, awful. It is. It is. And and let's just talk a little about your um, your life in academia. Um, so you're now at Lancaster University. You're the 
the um, Vice Chancellor for Engagement before uh, Lancaster. Um, uh, you were at uh, Dundee University. So, so talk a little about your, your life in academia. So I, I left academia as a lecturer in 1992 at Guy's Hospital and said I would never ever go back because it's uh, you know, it, I felt stifled by it, huge amount of bureaucracy, never ever wanted to go into a university ever again. And I got a phone call from Dundee out of the blue um, to say, look, we've got this student who wants to do a PhD in something to do with war crimes. Would you supervise him? And I said, well, what you want me to do is you want me to supervise a student and, and you don't have to pay me to do it. And Dundee said, yeah, yeah actually, you're quite right. And they hadn't realised that as well as being a forensic anthropologist, I was an anatomist. And their anatomy department was on the brink of deciding, do we do away with traditional anatomy or do we retain it? And so they invited me for interview. And um, I don't think I really wanted to go back into academia, but they made me an offer that I couldn't reject, which was, we'll give you the department and you can pretty well do with it as you like. And I thought, now that's much more interesting, much more interesting. And so I accepted it. So I went from being a lecturer to a professor with a 10 year gap and no, no grants, no publications, no nothing in between, you know, totally not the traditional academic pathway at all. And I found myself back in an anatomy department. And the first thing I did was I brought in forensic anthropology and it was Michael Portillo who launched my forensic anthropology degree in Dundee because he'd had so much of an involvement in identification in relation to the Spanish uh, Civil War. And so Dundee realised very quickly that if I was going to do anything, I rarely ever did it quietly. I, if I was going to do it, I, I tended to do it big, bold, brash and with a bit of fanfare. And so quite swiftly with the most fantastic team you could imagine, um, we really built the anatomy department up in parallel with forensic anthropology. And in, I think it was 20, 2014 or 2015, um, we were the first anatomy department and forensic anthropology department to receive the Queen's Anniversary oh. Award for Excellence. And that was just down to hard work and being prepared to take risks to do things differently, but to make sure that we had fun. And at the end of every um, job application, I always insisted that HR put in a little clause that said, you must be able to evidence the fact that you can have fun. And I, I believe very, very firmly, if you're gonna have a happy workplace, you have to be able to laugh a lot and to have fun. And whilst we were a department that dealt with death every single day because people donated their body every single day and a department that dealt with murder, with dismemberment, with rape, you name the, the heinous crimes. Probably the thing that I was most proud of was when we did our internal surveys, we were the department where there was no bullying and intimidation and we were the happiest department in the entire university. And for something that deals with death every single day, do you know, that, that to me is a great achievement. And then, of course, Lancaster University um, spotted you and wanted you. And so you moved to Lancaster University a couple of years ago now to be the Pro Vice Chancellor for Engagement. So just talk to us a little about what you do in that role to, to spread your happiness. So, so that was, there was a complete change for me, a complete, and not something I had planned. 
And Lancaster approached me and said, look, we're, we're creating this new job and we think, you know, you do well in it. And I thought, oh, would I really? Lancaster, why would I want to go to Lancaster? What on earth's in Lancaster? And I went down and visited and I fell in love with the place. From, from the minute I walked onto that campus, as a lot of people do, I fell in love with it. And there's a real community still at Lancaster, not just in the university, but in the region as well. But I did something um, on that first trip. And I always call it, I call it my taxi driver test. And I got into a taxi at the station and a taxi driver knows they have you as a captive audience from the moment you get in to the moment you get out. And I always ask a question and they assume if you ask a question, that you're gonna to want to hear the answer. And so I asked them what the relationship was like between Lancaster and its university. And that was the point at which I realized that there was a lot of work to do, but there was an incredibly rich seam of opportunity. And I thought, you know, maybe now's the time to do something a little bit different and to be able to do it under the banner of engagement allows me to literally go out and have permission to talk to everybody and anybody. And as you can see, I like talking and to go out there to say, how can we spread the great work that the university does? How can we interact better with another group of individuals we've never worked with before? How can we benefit something locally, regionally, and then nationally and internationally? And I would say for the first six months, I probably asked myself three times a day, what do I think I'm doing? Why on earth am I doing this? And the senior management at the university and the entire community, not just of the university, but of the region, really just took me to heart. And I honestly, genuinely felt that I'd find a home away from home. And to have such wonderfully raw and rich material to work with in engagement is, is just a joy. But what I love is the fact everybody tries to define what engagement means. And I refuse to have it defined because it means something so very, very different to everybody. So my stock answer is, there's a really good reason why you get engaged before you get married. It's about finding out who do I want to live with? Can I live with them? Can I change them to something that would be better and easier to live with? Or really, is there no hope in this relationship whatsoever? Was it a one night stand or was it this great love of your life? And just to have the opportunity to explore that on behalf of a university, I genuinely feel is a real honor and I've loved every single minute of it. So on that note, you've taken the, um, the workplace happiness survey. I have. So, and everybody uh, should do it. It's really quick and it really does make you think about what your answer is. Yeah, so, what, so for all our listeners, what is your answer? It's really bad, isn't it? You know, I, I, you know I'm so sorry for this, but it was 96%. Oh I'm 96% happy. So where, where on earth is there a marginal area for improvement? Um, for, for me, it's in not being very good at having a work-life balance. That, that's where I know, you know, my husband says to me, it would be really nice to see a little bit more of you before you die, those kind of things. But when your job is your career and it's your life, you don't actually feel as if you're working. 
it, it, you know, the fact that you get paid for doing something you enjoy is, is a real bonus. And for me, I, I would have been, it would have been a real failure for me. I think if my happiness had been less than, than 90%, because I'd be feeling that I would be kidding myself. And it really isn't. I absolutely love what I do. And okay, at the moment, I'm doing 70 hour weeks at the moment because it isn't everybody and trying to cope with, with COVID and everything that needs to be done. But the spirit that everybody else has as well, you know, makes it all worthwhile. So yeah, I'm very happy. Good. And, and in terms of um, the lockdown and COVID, has, has that helped or hindered your work-life balance? Um, both in some ways. Uh, so I, I spoke very early on uh, to my boss to say, look, I can lock myself in my beautiful, lovely little flat in Lancaster all on my own, or I can come back up here to Scotland and be with my husband and our youngest daughter, who's now just finished her postgrad. And he said very kindly, just go. So I'm about 300 miles north of Lancaster. And I would, I would never, ever have believed that I could have done my job from a distance. And there are very few things that I found that I can't do. And that's been a real eye opener. But what I miss more than anything is that unexpected bumping into somebody as you walk across the square or going for that cup of coffee with somebody in the coffee shop. The people that you meet by chance rather than organize to meet that's the bit that i probably miss more than anything but most of my job i found surprisingly i can do from home and i think everybody has adopted that really quite well but my my record was 13 back-to-back -back teams meetings in one day and i thought that was actually too much and so I've had to have a stiff word with myself that says I do need to have breaks every now and again to try and find some balance. But my computer goes on at seven in the morning. It goes off about seven at night. I do check my emails before I go to bed. And Saturdays and Sundays are pretty much like Tuesdays and Wednesdays. But I know that's going to change. And I know it's, it's short term in this crisis time. And tell me, if you had to choose one piece of music to listen to that makes you feel happy, what would it be? Oh, see, that's really easy because I've, I've had this um, to think about before because Kirsty Young had me on Desert Island Discs and you get to... I've well, seen your choices there and I don't know whether you're going to pick Highland Cathedral or Cher. Ah, well, well, there's a story behind them all, but let's not go to the Cher story. Um, it has to be Highland Cathedral. And for anyone who, who hasn't, but it's a particular rendition of Highland Cathedral um, because it's a piece that my children, my girls used to play because my girls were in the pipe band. So one was the drum major and the other was the, was, um, uh, the, uh, the lead drummer. And they used to play Highland Cathedral and they used to do it in the church. And it just used to make the hairs stand up on the back of my neck. And my father developed Alzheimer's and very serious dementia. And the only thing that ever seemed to get through to him was music, because he, he, is, he was a pianist and he was a church organist. And every time I would put on the, the DVD that the school had created of their music, 
whenever Highland Cathedral came on, my father's fingers would still play as if he was on, on a piano. And it's knowing that music gets through to the person who's trapped inside Alzheimer's. That's the thing, that's the piece of music I take because it takes my father with me and it takes my girls with me as well. And, and the last question is, um, if you were to nominate somebody to, uh, to do the Workplace Happiness Survey, who would you pick and why? Who would I pick and why? I would pick Julie Maxton, who is the director of the Royal Society in London. And Julie is a really, really interesting lady who runs the Royal Society just, you know, with military precision. Uh, she's a lawyer to trade, but she's one of the most open, intelligent and friendly people that I think I've ever met. Okay, that's a, that's a wonderful recommendation. And um, finally, uh, Dame, Dr. Susan Black. Susan, that's what my mother used to call me. Oh. And I didn't use your middle name either. <laughs> Can I just say what an absolute pleasure it's been to talk to you. Your story is truly remarkable. Um, uh, achieving all that you have uh, as an author as well and as an academic. Um, thank you very much for being on this edition of the Workplace Happiness podcast. And we wish you continued happiness and success. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're so kind. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.